you've been with us at all this spring uh, and this winter, way back in February, we started a new sermon series called The Cruciform Life, which is on the book of 1 Corinthians. And what I've been trying to say week by week in all different ways, basically the same thing I've been trying to say is this, is that the cross is not just the place of execution where Jesus died, but that the cross is meant to show us how to live. Jesus says, if anyone would believe in me, he must take up his cross and follow me. That if the cross, if the gospel is true, it means that everything is turned upside down. That what we thought made for the good life is actually wrong. Power, accumulation, comfort, glory, self-assertion, self-expression. That these things are not actually the way to the good life. But if the cross is true, it means that the good life is actually one that is marked by the way of Jesus, humility and sacrifice and self-giving and self-denial and even suffering and even death. That this way, the cross-shaped way, is actually the way to life. been looking at that week by week, and Paul was absorbed with the cross, especially in the beginning of this book. And here at the end of the book, in 1 Corinthians 15, he turns his gaze to be focused on the resurrection. This is our third Sunday on this great and amazing chapter, chapter 15, which is all about the resurrection of Jesus. And today we'll be ending this chapter and ending this sermon series as we finish absorbed with the resurrection as Paul was himself. So if you'll pray with me, uh, we will read, and our passage is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 58. You'll find that in your bulletin. It's quite a long passage. I printed the whole thing. I'll just be reading selections from it, but I'll want to refer to parts of it as we go along. So Let me pray as we go to God's word. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for that amazing truth that was just sung over us. We shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. That is the great truth of this passage, and I pray that you would empower me and all of us with the Holy Spirit this morning, that we would not just hear these words, but that we would believe them, and that we would not just believe these words but that we would respond to them and live according to them with the whole of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear God's word proclaimed to you about the cruciform and resurrected life. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat, or some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Let's skip down to verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a life-giving being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man 
of heaven. Gosh, that was confusing. I'll explain all that when we get to the sermon in just a second. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But listen, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. The twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, stand firm, be immovable, always abound, give yourself to the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. As a pastor, and frankly, as a parent, a father, and a patient even, I have spent a lot of time at St. Mary's Hospital, um, just down the road here. It's a a Bon Secours Hospital. And I encountered something over 10 years ago at St. Mary's that has really deeply impacted my life. And it it is, uh, I have it here, this crucifix. It's not surprising for a Catholic hospital Uh, or a Catholic institution to have crucifixes in the rooms or in the hallways. But when I first saw this crucifix over 13 years ago when we had our first child there, I was struck by something about this crucifix that I had never seen before. I put a picture of it here up on the wall for you. Like most crucifixes, there's a cross, of course, but yet on most crucifixes, the Jesus that is upon the cross is a dead Jesus, a dying Jesus. And yet here on this crucifix, we see a risen Jesus, an ascended Jesus, a triumphant, victorious Jesus. The cross is still there like a yoke that he still bears for us, and yet his identity is one of triumph, victory, ascendancy, and resurrection. You know, I, I, I love this crucifix. I loved it so much that by the time we were there for our third child, and we were leaving, I asked the nurse if, could I have that off the wall? You know, they give us the blankets and the beanies. So could I have that too? She said, no, you may not have that. I said, here's 50 bucks. Can I buy it off the wall from you? She said, no, you may not buy it off the wall. So I said, well, how can I get one? She said, go to the gift shop. Maybe they can order you one. So I did, and here it is. And now it hangs in my home. And today it is a sign for us of the vision of life that every one of us is called to. Crucifixion resurrection. If you are a Christian here today, friends, brothers and sisters, listen, if you are a Christian, your life must be marked by these two great twin events more than anything else. Cross, resurrection. Cross and resurrection. These two great events must fuel and form and direct your life more than anything else in your life. Cross and resurrection. If you're not a Christian here today, if you're considering becoming a Christian, if you're not sure that you are a Christian, I would invite you to consider that your own life will only ever make sense when it is framed by these two great events, cross and resurrection, even more specifically by the man who died and rose again, his death, his resurrection. We've spent all winter and early spring talking about the cross, 
And we spent the last few weeks talking about the resurrection, and we conclude there today. And here is my great thesis, friends. The cross-shaped life only makes sense when it ends in resurrection. The cross-shaped life only makes sense when it ends in resurrection. So let's look at this glorious, yet I will admit, confusing passage from Paul by looking at it in sort of the three lenses of past, present, and future. First, the, pre- the past. Paul talks about how the resurrection of Jesus, what he did in the past, has changed everything. Then let's look to the future, how the resurrection of Jesus will change everything. And then finally, Paul ends with the present, what the resurrection of Jesus means for the here and now. Past, future, present. All right, you got that, friends? Are you with me? You out there? Okay. Uh, So first, the past. How did the resurrection of Jesus change everything? Well, let's look at verses 42 through 49. This is the hardest part of the text to understand. And it's actually a recapitulation of a previous argument in the chapter. And I will just touch on it briefly because Rick preached about it very well two weeks ago. Paul's basic argument is this, that because Jesus rose from the dead on Easter morning, he put a stop to the cycle of death that plagues all of us because of our connection to the first man, Adam. That Jesus rose from the dead, putting a stop to the cycle of death that you and I are bound to because of our connection to Adam. You were made not to die. You and I, God made the good earth. He made the good world. He made our good bodies. He made us to live on this world in everlasting life, to be whole and healthy and beautiful, lasting in these bodies. And yet, because we are connected to Adam and because Adam chose to believe the lie of the serpent that God did not love and God could not be trusted... We and all creation are captive to death. Our bodies are captive to death. God's good earth and everything in it is captive to death. His good vision for a good earth and a good body and a good creation is broken. And yet God would not let his good creation fail. So what Paul says is he came among us in the person of Jesus. And this person, Jesus was in the likeness of Adam. He was of the human race because he was fully man. And yet because he was also fully God, he was the man from heaven. He was the second Adam, the last Adam, a new Adam who came to undo the curse and reverse death. And when he rose from the dead, he made it possible for the whole cycle of death that you and I and all of creation are bound to, to be stopped and to be undone. That he rose from the dead releasing the power of the resurrection for us and for creation forever. Now, I know that this is complicated theology, but let me try to explain it through a often told illustration. It's been told for you know, a long, long time by many preachers, but let me share it with you here. It may be helpful. I want you to imagine, imagine a long line of mountain climbers ascending a steep rock face of a treacherous mountain. All right? And you've, you've probably seen pictures of this before. You'll see a lead climber at the very top. And he's tethered in with a rope to all the other climbers who are climbing up behind him. And that lead climber is ahead of them. And he is setting the course and laying the holes that all of them are following. Do you have that that picture imagined in your mind? Well, suddenly the, the lead climber falls. He plunges into the abyss, into the crevasse. And, 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 but remember, he's connected to all the rest. And so the second climber sees this fall and he knows what's coming in. The rope tightens and he too is... S- pulled off the wall. He too begins to fall into the abyss. 
and then the third climber, and then the fourth climber, and then the fifth climber, and one by one, because they are all tethered to each other, fall one by one off the wall until there is only one final man on the wall. And he sees what is coming. He sees that this, this fall is about to fall upon him. And so he takes his axe, and with a mighty stroke, he slams it into the rock, and he braces himself. And then the moment comes, the rope tightens and snaps, and all of the weight of the men and the full velocity of their fall suddenly crashes upon him into his body with this lethal, sickening, overwhelming force, crushing his body. And yet he holds. He holds. The, the rope is constricting, crushing him. His ribs are snapping. His harness is tearing into his skin and muscle. And yet he bears all the weight of all the climbers he holds, and he just begins the ever so slowly to climb, and all the climbers beneath him find their footing, and all are saved. And this is what Paul is describing here with this vision of the first and last man. He says Adam is the first lead climber. He is that one who went before us that we are all connected to. And he fell, and one by one, because we are connected to him, we fall with him. One by one, we fall after him into that same abyss. Verse 48, as was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And what we needed was another man, a man who was one of us and like us, and yet was not like us, who was the God-man, who could bear the weight of our fallenness, our sin and evil, and who could do it even while he was being crushed for us. That's what we needed, and that's what we got. Jesus was that man, the last man on the mountain, the God-man. The last Adam, he stood his ground, he held, he broke through death. And now for all those who trust in Jesus Christ, you may be connected to that new man. Just as he broke through death, you too, in and through him, may break through death as well. That is what Paul's saying has happened through the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the new man, the heavenly man. Jesus has risen from the dead. He's fundamentally changed the course of history. And he has given you the power and the potential to be freed from the cycle of death that you were bound to because of your connection to Adam. So the great question of this first point is this. Are you connected to the lead man, the new lead man? Whether you like it or not, you're connected to Adam. You're falling off with, right along with him. But by faith, you can be connected to the new man the last man on the mountain. You could be connected to him by faith and be saved from certain death. So that's the past, how the resurrection of Jesus has changed everything for us, has stopped the cycle of death. But Paul's great occupation in this chapter is to focus on the future. His great argument here is this, is that what God has done for us in Jesus, he will also do for his people. What God has done in raising Jesus from the dead, he will also do for all those who belong to him by faith. So Rick used a great illustration two weeks ago of dominoes. Jesus is the first domino to fall, and yet all who belong to him will come right after him. You could also say that Jesus is the, the prototype. You know, I remember when iPhones came out, I had one friend who had an iPhone. We all had, you know, old flip phones, and it was like he was the, the, the prototype. He was the first foretaste of a new thing that was coming even in the midst of our uh, un unconsolable state of flip phones. You know, he was, he was, he was the new prototype of, of what was to come. You could say that Jesus is the, pr the movie preview of the future feature 
film that constitutes resurrection for all creation. You could say that Jesus is the tidal wave, the first crash of the whole tsunami of renewal that God is bringing to earth. You could say that Jesus is the needle and connected to him by the thread. He pulls along those who belong to him right into the future. Do you see? You could say he's the first fruit of the new harvest. He's the needle. He's the tidal wave. He's the prototype. He's the preview. He's the domino. (laughs) You see, I'm excited about this. He is. He is the one who by faith we may be connected to him so that what is now true of Jesus may now be true of you. And your own future is his present reality. When it comes to the future, friends, when it comes to the afterlife, we have two lame options in our culture that we often hear about the most. Let's, let's say they are, let's just use a, a simple uh, polarity here and say they are uh, it's the, the religious view versus the secular view. It's the conservative view versus the liberal view. It's the, it, it's the sentimental view versus the cynical view. You know, on the one hand, you've got the secularists who say afterlife consists of, of annihilation. You essentially cease to exist. Your body returns to the ground, you rot and, and return to the earth. And we try to romanticize it. We sing about the circle of life and all that stuff. And yet we know what's true, that this view of the afterlife is you are worm food. That's the afterlife. On the other side, you've got the the religious view, which is what sometimes is called heaven. That when you die, you enter some kind of spiritual disembodied existence, floating around in some nirvana-like paradise, seeing the people that you once knew, looking down on the people that you love. So that's really the options, friends, according to our culture, is that on the one hand, you're worm food. On the other hand, you're disembodied in some sort of nirvana place. Which is it? Which would you like? And the Bible says, neither. According to the Bible, both of these are heresies, never taught in Scripture, and yet especially the second one is what so many Christians believe. What is the Christian hope? Certainly not annihilation, but also not heaven. The Christian hope is resurrection, new bodies on a new earth. Look what Paul says in verse 51. He says, we will not all sleep. That's the phrase that Paul and the other apostles use to describe what happens to the dead in Christ as they await the resurrection. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but the dead are sleeping, he says, waiting for the resurrection. And then he says, look, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. Let me try to explain this as plain as I know how. This is our hope, friends. There will be one singular event in which Jesus Christ, in bodily form, who now waits in heaven at the right hand of the Father, will return, and all those who have trusted in him and who are dead will be literally raised up from the grave and transformed, given new bodies like his body. And those who are still alive at his coming will also be changed and transformed to give a body like his. And not only that, but all of creation will be transformed. As Paul says in Romans 8, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That, that is our hope. New bodies on a new earth. A whole new world. That's what's coming, friends. A new earth. Today's Earth Day. Did you know that? And Christians, of all people, 
should be people who celebrate Earth Day and who do something about it. Why? Because God made the earth. God loves the earth. God walked on the earth. God will recreate the earth, everything. The earth matters because God loves it and will recreate it. He will make a real material world again. Mountains, trees, rivers, lakes, animals. A world rid of just injustice. A world rid of hunger. A world in which sickness and pollution and war have been expunged. A world that we will live in with new transformed Bodies, can you imagine a body without exhaustion, without arthritis, without cancer, without canker sores, without hangnails, without hemorrhoids? Can you imagine, friends? None of that. Living together in new bodies in a new restored and redeemed world. And you may ask, what? What will that be like? Well, I don't really know. But we get a glimpse of it in the resurrected Jesus, don't we? If you read some of his resurrection appearances, You'll see this is a remarkable person because in some ways he is clearly the same man. He bears the wounds of his cross. He, he has the same personality, and yet he was clearly different. He was transformed. There was something glorious and numinous about him. He seemed to be able to do crazy things like walk through walls. I can't wait to do that, especially when my kids lock me out of their bedroom, right? And, and yet he is, he is not resuscitated like Lazarus, who will die again. He is transformed, He is in a renewed body. And Paul says, that is what your body will become. He uses this analogy of a seed. Where did I put that? I walked outside before the service and I got this. I found this little acorn on the ground. You see this little acorn? I found it right under that oak tree right there. Do you know the same genetic material is in this acorn that is in that tree? Same continuity, yet profound discontinuity. And Paul says, your body is now to what your future self and body will be, what this acorn is to that tree. You are just a seed of what you will one day be. You will be the same person as you are now, and yet you will be something so glorious, so different, so transformed, that C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory, you would be tempted to worship that being because they are so like Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Now, there's a lot of questions we don't know, lots of debates, you know, about timing of all these things, how to interpret the book of Revelation, amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, all this stuff. I'm a panmillennial, which means it's all just going to pan out. You know, we just know, we know it's going to pan out in the end. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm not. I actually have views on these things, but we're going to do, a, I'm going to do a podcast on it this week because there's about eschatology. There's lots of questions about that. But here's what we know. There's a lot of questions that should not divide Christians, but here's what we know. God will raise the dead. That's what we know. He will raise the dead, and he will raise the earth. Christianity is not about evacuation. It is about reclamation. It is not about escaping. It is about Jesus, the the man from heaven, the last Adam, coming and reclaiming the world that is his. It 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 is about resurrection, and because Jesus rose from the dead, we too can be a part of that amazing future because he is the needle, the domino, the first fruit, the prototype, the tidal wave, the last man on the mountain, and you hold to him. That's your future too. Richard Hayes is a Bible commentator and a, and a pastor, and he tells a story about a young woman in his congregation named Stephanie, whose older sister, Lisa, died in a terrible car accident. And people were saying things to Lisa like this, with all good intentions, oh, Lisa is much happier now in heaven. Um, don't be upset. God must have needed an angel. Uh, Lisa's looking down on you now, doesn't want you to be sad. And the more people were saying things like that, 
to Stephanie, the angrier she got because it felt so shallow. It didn't feel true. It didn't feel right. And so she came to see her pastor, Richard, and he, he showed her this passage from 1 Corinthians 15, and he read it to her. And he said, two, I want to tell you two things. First of all, don't listen to those people. You need to be angry because death is the enemy, and it robs the good creation that God intends. So be angry, be, ang- be mad. And then second, he said, listen, you will see your sister again, not as a ghost, not as an angel, not as a disembodied soul, but you will see her as she is. You will hold her, you will hug her, you will feel the brush of her hair on your face. You will know her as she is, but even much more glorious than she ever was. That's what you anticipate. That's what you hold to. And it changed her. Don't you see that this is what we're after? Don't you see all, all the diets, all your diets and exercise? It's because it's you want a new body. You know, all, the, all your makeup and cosmetics and surgery, don't you see? It's because you want a new self. You want new skin. All the stuff you buy, your accumulation, all the new gadgets you have to get, don't you see? You want the new. And Jesus says, I want it for you. The new creation is coming. Everything will be made whole. That's what Jesus has won. That's our hope, okay? So we've seen the past, we've seen the future, and then finally, though, Paul ends in verse 58 on the present. Isn't that remarkable? He says, therefore, at the end, because this is our future hope, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I think he's talking about just two simple things here. Courage and perseverance. You can have courage because of the resurrection, and you can have perseverance right now because of the resurrection. First, courage. Paul says that knowing the resurrection is coming gives you great courage for the, for the present. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Being alone, getting sick, financial ruin, uh, humiliation, losing someone that you love. Whatever it is, Paul says that death is the epitome, the summation of our fears. It is the culmination of all our fears because it is the total annihilation of our very selves. It is desolation. It is extinguishment, destruction. It is, this is why he calls death the last enemy because it is the sum total of all of our human fears. And yet Paul says here, the enemy has been destroyed. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death was the spear aimed right at your heart And Jesus, the last Adam, the God-man, leaped in front of you and took that spear instead. And as a result, death has been defanged. It's been beaten. And you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. And listen, if you don't have to be afraid of death, the last enemy, then you don't have to be afraid of anything. I love what George Herbert, one of my favorite poets, wrote. He said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. Don't you love that? Only a poet could say such things. That, that, that death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has made him just a gardener. What he means is that without the gospel, death is terrifying. Without Jesus, death is, is annihilation. But because of Jesus, all death can do is to make you into something wonderful. All death can do is plant you in the ground for a little bit, and then Jesus, the one who's gone before you, will raise you up with a body like his. Death can only make you better. And so you can say to death, like Paul says here, ha, do your worst. Where's your sting? Where's your victory? Like a little kid, he's saying, nah, 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 nah. Stick his tongue out of death, right? 
any suffering, any sorrow, any pain, any problem in the end because of Jesus can only make you better, can only make you beautiful. So you can mock death. You really can. You can say, come on, death. Come on, cross. Come on, pain. Come on, sorrow. Come on, problem. Hurt me, you grow me. Wound me, you beautify me. Kill me, you just plant me in the ground to prepare me to become something glorious. You see this amazing courage, amazing ability to stand firm. Because if this is true, it means nothing can undo you. Nothing that actually matters can be taken from you. Nothing can make you afraid. So don't be afraid. So courage, but also perseverance. He says, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul's saying that knowing resurrection is coming, we can persevere. We know that anything that we do for the Lord, any sacrifice we make for him, will in the end be worth it because resurrection is coming. He uses the word here for labor, labor, which is work or pain or trouble or toil or fatigue. And essentially he's saying that's what the Christian life is. Y'all, I hope that if if you've learned one thing in in this last Cruciform Life series, it's that the, the Christian life is sometimes a hard life. Jesus calling you on the way of the cross, I mean, man, that's a hard thing sometimes, isn't it? And as a Christian, you are sometimes called into hard things, going the way of obedience, going the way of self-denial, going the way of sacrifice from very small things like we talked about, you know, letting people merge in traffic in front of you. That's hard. But big, big things like laying down your life for another person like some of you have done. As a Christian, you find yourself out of step. You find yourself living counterculturally. You, you give, you know, give your money away. You have to make choices against your feelings, impulses, sexual desires. You, you sometimes might face ridicule for your faith. You might be overlooked for a promotion because you refuse to compromise something ethically. You, you might give yourself to a permanent or long-term sacrifice. You do great battles against your own sin and character. You, you choose to do the very painful work of forgiveness and reconciliation when you would rather, frankly, just be estranged. See, you're out of step with the world, and it's painful. And sometimes, I wonder this sometimes, is this really worth it? Is this way of Jesus really worth it? Will you ever see the fruit of your labor? Does it really matter? And Paul says, it does. Your labor for the Lord is not in vain. Every single thing you do, from the tiniest things done for the Lord, done in love for God and neighbor, is worth it. It's worth it, friends. Every sacrifice you make, every dollar you give away, every act of self-discipline, every temptation that you resist, every wound you forgive— Every piece of trash you pick off the ground, every garden that you tend, every child you teach, every body you heal, every prayer that you pray, every trial you face, every injustice you fight, every person you love, every single thing matters. Every single one. Because a new world is coming. And one day we will look up in new bodies and a new creation, and we will see the harvest of our labor, and we will look at each other in our new glorious selves around the throne of Jesus, and we will say, he was right. It's all worth it. Every single thing was worth it. So friends, the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection makes the cruciform life worth it. Jesus has given us the victory through his own resurrection. He has stopped the cycle of death that all of us were captive to. Second, Jesus will transform all things. His resurrected body is a prototype, a preview of what is in store for all of us who belong to him. And finally, Jesus, through his resurrection, empowers us to live with courage and perseverance in the here and now. So let me end with this. 
Many of you know our dear, dear sister, uh, Janice Sumter, who is not well. Janice often sits right there um, in the center of our congregation, and a couple of weeks ago, she was admitted into the hospital with a serious illness, and she's just worsened and worsened, and on Thursday, we got a call that she was admitted into hospice. And so I went to see Janice on Thursday, and I sat with her, and she was belabored in her speaking, but we spoke to each other. We spoke about her life. We spoke about her hope. She spoke about the fact that she is not afraid to die. And as we sat there together in the room at St. Francis, uh, I looked up, and I saw this hanging on the wall. And so I went over, and I picked it up off the wall, and I got back down next to her, and we held, we held this together in our hands. And I read to her our passage for this Sunday from 1 Corinthians 15. And, 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 and I said, Janice, you have lived, you have borne your cross. You have lived with this broken body. You have loved with unstoppable love. You have given yourself to so many people. You have, you have lost your life for the sake of Jesus. And now, this is what is before you. The resurrection. Janice in a new body. Janice standing on a new earth. And friends, I want you to know that that is the hope for Janice Sumter. And that is the hope for every single one of you if you hold to the last man. Hold to him. Hold to him. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we praise you that because you love us, you did not let your world and you did not let your people fall into the captivity of death, but that Jesus came as the last Adam. He stood hold, he stood firm as that last man on the mountain, and he held us firm, triumphing over death, and that now through faith in him, we can belong to him, and we can experience the promise and the hope of the resurrection life. Lord, I pray that for all those who are um, in need today, that you would give us courage and perseverance to face the things we must face, knowing that no labor that we do for you is ever in vain. We pray this in Jesus' name.